Artichoke pizza? I don't know if you had artichoke pizza while you're here. I, um, I mean, I've had, I, I know I've had pizza like with artichokes on it. Is this a specific? No, it's a place and they have an artichoke oh. pizza. It's very large. Uh, it's creamy. It has spinach, artichoke, gouda cheese, that kind of thing on it. You probably mm-hmm. had this type of pizza before. Um, I don't think I've had this specific. Um, right. We're just like photos of the pizza. Is that not something we can... Oh, I click on latest Instagram and that doesn't really take me anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Type in artichoke basilis. B-A-S-I-L-L-E. Let's see. I'm just going to do a Google image search here. Yeah, that's your best bet. Ooh, this looks good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, although there are apparently New York pizza purists who say that it's not real New York pizza, so looks like count. kind of a thicker crust for New York pizza. Well, for the so that's the thing is there's an artichoke slice which is very very bready, but then there's a margarita which I think has a really great deep flavor, and then like there's also something called a grandma slice which is like a Sicilian cut, which I think also has a really great flavor. I actually hardly eat the artichoke, but it's good to have at least once. The Sicilian cut is more of a like New York style, right? Uh, kind of. It's still thick, and it's almost burned on the bottom, uh, which I actually really like, but some people don't. It's mm. not your classic foldable pizza, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Recently, um, I feel like Detroit-style pizza is a term that I've heard more and more. Uh, and I don't. Th- I think that's just like your... Like, it's not New York-style pizza. It's not really foldable. There's more bread to it, but it's certainly not deep-dish pizza either. It's just it's like your sort of average thing. American pizza. I don't know if I would call it average American pizza because it's square and the sauce is on top. That's true. The sauce, the the square is, uh, I guess, the sauce, too. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's, it's, a, weird, it's, a, term, it's a weird slice. I'd only heard, uh, man, yeah, that looks like an intense picture from Business Insider. It's just sauce all over. <laughs> um, Have you had a Detroit-style pizza in Detroit? Uh, you know, I don't think I've actually had it in Detroit, no. In Ann Arbor. In Ann Arbor. I mean, that counts, right? Ann Arbor's like 30 minutes from Detroit. Yeah. For, well, <laughs> uh, it's like saying that um, you know Newark counts as, uh, as New York. It's not. Yeah, but it's the same state. Yeah. It's like I mean, a it's, suburb it's the of same. Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. I would, not, um, I would not say that I'm from Detroit. No, that's fair. Are uh, you from Ann Arbor? No, I'm not from Ann Arbor either. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> More from like, Ann Arbor than from Detroit, though. Wait a second. Detroit. Here it is. What are you What are you looking at? I'm just looking at the map to see where everything is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's close, but it's not right. at all the same. Yeah, it, it, if any of these suburbs were its own city, like Ann Arbor and Flint would be their own cities. Yeah, but definitely. they're very close. Yeah, and even looking at like the metro area here, like you'll you see Pontiac up there. That's like very distinctly its own, um, right? Its own city. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, a lot of the the ones closer in are like just suburbs that. Oh, I did not know Ypsilanti was so close to both Ann Arbor and Detroit. It is. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's very right close there. to Ann Arbor. It's still pretty far from Detroit. Like. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like in between them. I thought it was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. No, it's uh, like Ann Arbor almost like just transitions to Ypsilanti. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. And then your airport, DTW Detroit, is 
like equidistant almost from the center of Ann Arbor and the center of Detroit. Yeah, it's it's half an hour from either place. Yeah, that's pretty convenient. Yeah. Unless you're like going to downtown Detroit, but Right. That's true. I think all all airports are half an hour from downtown wherever. <laughs> there are a couple of exceptions. Except LaGuardia, which is just horrible. Yeah. It's, You've it's never, have you ever been to Toronto? No, I love I talking haven't. about the Toronto airport. We did Look a podcast up, about the <laughs> I think we did. Anyway, it's really good. And Logan <laughs> in Boston is also very close to the city. Oh, that's true, yeah. That's a but those are like exceptions to the rule rather than Maps, Boston Logan. And Reagan's close too. Reagan's not super far in DC. That's true. But they make up for it by Dulles being just an absolute shit show to get to. I don't know if I've ever flown to the Boston airport. I've driven to or I've been to Boston, but uh, via bus or train. Yeah. Or both. I haven't spent much time in Boston. Uh, we should do a podcast. Uh, we need to talk about um, U of M basketball game at, at 9.20 p.m. Where so you've got, a, you've got a hard out. I have a hard out. It's the national championship game. I don't really watch that many that, that much sports, but... Uh, we're playing Villanova for the like NCAA championship tonight. This is the the last game of March Madness. Nice. So is that is this this is it? This is it. This is the big the big. This boy. is the one. It's going to be Michigan or Villanova. Nice. Um, Where is Villanova? That's a great question. I have no idea. Villanova, Pennsylvania. It's in Pennsylvania. Apparently, huh. it looks like a oh, suburb it's just of Philly in the Philly. same way that that Ann Arbor is a suburb of uh, Detroit. Don't at me. <laughs> I think Detroit's. I think Ann Arbor's maybe further from Detroit. Yeah, no, Maps is. doesn't have being, a good scale. That was being funny. <laughs> Hilarious. Pennsylvania is a very long state. Long state. I've I've driven across Pennsylvania many times. I used to live in Pittsburgh. Oh, that's right. I've I've only driven across all of Pennsylvania once. I th- well, no, that's not true. Recently, <laughs> I've only done it once. Yeah, a few years state. ago. I like Pennsylvania. It is. Yeah. Me too. Uh, Pittsburgh's cool. Podcasting, podcasting, podcasting. How does that work? I actually have something that may be kind of fun to talk about. Okay. Um, so I started code auditing this project, and I started thinking about like, okay, when you're looking at a project, like, what are the things that you should fix in what order? Hmm. Right. Like, imagine you 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 got put on a project, and there could be any number of things wrong with it. Right, there could be things that are physically just spelled wrong, like just English words that are spelled wrong. There sure. could be implicitly unwrapped optionals everywhere. There could be bad architecture decisions, like singletons and stuff. There could be behavior that's that's incorrect. There could be you know lack of tests. There could be all kinds of things wrong with it, right? And every project has some subset of those things wrong with it, right? And a lot of these things are things that we have previously podcasted about in that's episodes right. one through sixty-two. <laughs> Can you believe we've done 62 podcasts already? It's kind of hard to believe. Like, that is, especially since we were doing every two weeks for a while, this is, you know, well, well over a year of, um, I mean, how have we been doing this almost two years, right? Yeah, this is the end of season four. We're getting towards the end of season four, which is the yeah. sec- end of the second year, yeah. Yeah. Pretty nuts. Yeah, it's been a pretty good run. Yeah, so I, I was basically like trying to go, what's the grand unified theory of like, okay, I know I have these things wrong. What order should I tackle them in? Like, what order is it important to fix them in? Um, yeah. And so on. So, I, uh, or do you, do you want to go first? No, actually, I'm curious to, to know what you think sort of unprompted, just as I introduced this topic to you like two minutes ago. 
So with the caveat that it kind of depends, um, you know, it, whether you've been uh, like assigned anything specific to focus on, right? If, if right. whoever's paying you wants you to focus on X thing, you should probably focus on that. I, what, what I would do is start using the app and note things that seem broken. Uh, look at feedback that you've gotten from users of the app and see what seems broken. Because I think rather than starting this with like a technical or like code review, I would see, okay, are there obvious user-facing problems? Are there subtle user-facing problems? And then I would prioritize the like things that users are actually going to notice, like things that maybe you notice quickly when you start using the app and work from there. Because really, especially I think on a contract engagement where maybe you're not there long, uh, you're not, not going to be there super long necessarily. Uh, I think the biggest bang for your buck is going to be, first of all, like identifying what are the user-facing problems here. And then start digging into the code behind them. If they're like English fixes, I mean, maybe, you know, spend half an hour fixing all the English problems that you find in the app, right? That That's and that's a pretty easy win if the app has, uh, you know, has, um, has problems like that, spelling errors and whatnot. Yep. And then you can start digging into your, uh, you know, kind of prioritized list of problems that users can notice. And you can start seeing, you know, what are the, what do we think the underlying causes are? Are any of these like trivial to fix? If so, you know, just knock those out really quickly. Then start digging in, you know, maybe some of the user facing problems are due to some more complicated, you know, say like shared, shared mutable state problem. Maybe they are related to um, singletons or any of the like underlying problems that, you know, we've talked about before. Because, uh, you know, the reason we talk about those things is not because, um, or not just because they're, you know, kind of code smells and they're not great, but because they do end up having user facing consequences, right? And so if I were just given an app and said, here, improve this, I would start by trying to identify those consequences and then working backward and uh, fixing trivial root causes and then starting to dig into, okay, these are the like more complicated uh, root causes that maybe are behind these user-facing problems. And, uh, and you know, from there, you can kind of prioritize what you want to work on based on how much time you have, based on how much time you think uh, these things will take to fix. Another easy win would be, you know, if there are tests, run them. If tests are failing, then figure out why, because someone wrote the test uh, to, um, you know, to assert that some behavior is happening and that behavior is not happening. So why? Uh, is that test no longer valid? Is it is something just broken? Um, if there is a test suite, then that is a, uh, you know, then there may be some easy wins to be had there as well. I, I think that's my that would be my thought going in. So what's super interesting is that your thoughts on this basically perfectly parallel mine. Ah, who would have thought that after doing 62 podcasts together? Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's almost uncanny, actually. So yeah, so what I have written down here is essentially the number one thing is that the behavior, like the like, when, and when I say uh, basically the behavior has to be correct. And when I say the behavior has to be correct, I mean sort of the happy path, straight line, like nothing's going wrong, behavior has to just work. Like mm-hmm. that is your first thing. Yeah. And there may be other weird edge cases that like don't work exactly as you expect them to, but that's like a little less important than your the core behavior of the app should just work. That's the first thing. If that doesn't work, mm-hmm. the, uh, you have to fix that first. There's there's nothing else to be done. Once you have that, then my thought is basically working on anything that is as you mentioned, you kind of go to the code level and you kind of 
work on anything that is trivial to fix, as you mentioned. So that's like spelling stuff. That's punctuation in terms of like, do we need semicolons here? Do we not need semicolons? Or like, how do we define our closure syntax? Are we are we consistent in all of our syntax and how we write functions? And then, of course, spacing, making sure that everything's spaced correctly. I would say yeah. that things like closure syntax and spacing are pretty far down the priority list here because I like because assuming you've been handed an app like you know first and foremost you you're trying to like whip things into shape and maybe what like as as you whip things into shape you can make it more uh you know more more easily maintainable and and easier to read but you know that's not necessarily your uh your your first priority um maybe your your like second or third priority is like improving the maintainability and readability readability of of the code base and and I guess that you said that like this is what you look at after you've knocked out all the like a lot of the user facing stuff. Yeah, the reason that I think that it's important to do early is because it can be so quick. Because um, and I'm actually going to explore some of this stuff uh, in the next couple of weeks. But Swiftlet Autocorrect and Swift Format, which are two projects that will essentially let you um, automatically format everything in your project and just getting all that stuff to be sort of consistent, if that makes sense. So I think just because it, it can be automated and you can do it so quickly, I think it, there's some value in like getting the whole code base in a very consistent format um, and cleaning up a bunch of things that are just obviously wrong and are just distracting you from the subtler issues that are, that are happening um, in the code base. So I'll, I'll buy cleaning up things that are obviously wrong, but one kind of word of caution here, uh, if you know you were talking about just going in and reformatting the code base, especially with like an automated tool, is that you lose the ability then to like say display git blame in the in a sidebar in your editor, uh, which can That's be really fair. helpful as you dive into an unfamiliar code base, right? Uh, at least if people you know have been you have been using git reasonably well, like it can be very very useful to go to a line of code even if it's poorly formatted, but to be able to click and say okay why is this the way it is? What is written in this commit message? What pull request brought this in? And of course that history is still there, but it's a, a little bit harder to uh, to get to you know quickly if you have uh, reformatted large parts of the code base. Yeah, that's a really fair point. I didn't really think about that. That's a super good point. I would say that that's also like I wish that weren't the case. Like it's a tooling problem, right? Like you should be able to see, okay, who edited this code line of code last, but who edited yeah. it before that? Like that seems really. Or it would be cool. You imagine like Sublime or IntelliJ or or many IDEs will have. I don't. I guess does Xcode have any sort of like Git blame tooling built right into the editor? It does, but again, like all Git blame tooling, it only goes one level. It only tells you who edited that line of code last. This is what I, what I'm thinking. You know how GitHub has the magic feature where if you're looking at a diff, you add the get parameter w equals one to the yes. URL and That's it ignores white space. Yes, it would be really cool if you could tell you know your Xcode. Sublime, IntelliJ, whatever you're using for your Git blame tool to basically ignore white space in that same way. Like, tell me the last, uh, tell me the last like non-white space change to this line. Right, that's a really cool idea. Tell me the last meaningful change to this line. Right, that is a pretty cool idea too. So yeah, those are those are kind of um, those are kind of uh, tooling related questions that like. You know, unfortunately, we don't have those, so maybe you're right that, like, white space needs to be saved until you have a better sense of the, how the app works. Or you could also just leave it, keep a reference tap back to that original commit, maybe on a branch, and then hop back to that whenever you want to do a git blame and figure out, like, why is something the way it is. Sure, maybe yeah. you have good, um, good 
commit messages. But for me, it, it can sometimes be really hard to look at a code base when it's like, you know, when there's like not the right spacing around a colon or something like that. And I think that that's kind of a personal failing of mine. Um, and I know other people have this, but I think if I didn't have it, it would be better. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's a, a personal thing, but also uh, that's the reason that we aim for consistent style is just because it makes the code easier for, for everyone to read. And, you know, if your brain is spending less time focusing on reading the code, you can spend more time just thinking about like the code and what it's doing and what it says. Yeah, exactly. So whether or not you want to fix formatting and spelling and stuff uh, is on the table. Also, um, in IntelliJ, which is like the app code and um, Android Studio mm-hmm. thing, right? IntelliJ actually tells you when your things are misspelled. So it'll actually break up your tokens based on camel case or whatever and tell you if things are misspelled. Don't, don't, don't we deserve that? We do. Uh, although with the caveat, I, I, I'm pretty sure that I've turned that off recently just because a lot of, you know, you abbreviate things in variable names. And even if it's obvious in context, the spell checker flags it. Right. And then I have stuff underlined that is kind of distracting yeah you should at least be able to say like like run through this and then ignore everything that i'm ignoring or something you should be able to do something good there but like yeah um yeah and it's not going to catch everything just like any spell checker but it could be good to have yeah definitely so yes that's one thing so then once you have like your formatting and your visual level stuff then you can get one level more serious and you can start looking at basically what uh, I was talking about this with Brian Iris earlier, and he was calling it Swift idioms. So, like, making sure that you're using optionals correctly, making sure that you're using sequences correctly, making mm-hmm. sure that you're using, um, you know, string handling, making sure you're using uh, indices instead of integer offsets, like, working within the way that Swift wants you to work, mm-hmm. um, starting to fix that stuff. Um, the biggest one here, of course, is optionals, just because making sure you have good optional usage um, in my experience, like one of my clients from two or three years ago, they had a bunch of crashes. It's like only 60% of their users were crash free. And Whoa. we just fixed all the optional stuff and basically just didn't allow any more exclamation points in the app and went from, you know, 60% crash free to like 99.9% crash free. Yeah. We're like if you write a Swift app the way Swift wants you to write apps, it doesn't crash. And that, I mean, so this goes back to something that, you know, something I was trying to say earlier, which is that. You know, we even though you know, I suggest starting from the user's user's perspective. A lot of the things that you'll notice while while looking at code that again, especially aren't Swift idioms or or you know, you're looking for things that are misuse of optionals. Mm-hmm. We look for not just because we think exclamation points are ugly, right? But because they're you know, there are things that we look that that we know can often lead to user facing problems right we yeah. don't we don't avoid shared mutable state just because uh it's it's ugly and kind of hard to deal with well we do because it's hard to deal with right and <laughs> and because that hard to deal with like manifests itself in strange user facing bugs throughout the application yeah at the end of the day if you had infinite budget and infinite time you could do whatever you wanted but you don't and so you have to focus on things that actually matter mm-hmm. um, and things that will sort of have an effect for the end user with the exception of formatting code formatting i think can help developers so much just making it clear to understand exactly what's happening if it's going to help um, you understand the code that the user is seeing run then i mean yeah. it, that can be worthwhile yeah so yeah, so and I mean, I mean, I just really can't overstate how important it is to like get optionals right. They're kind of hard to work with if you're not used to them, but as you write more Swift, you gain a ton of facility for like how to work with them and how to 
dance around them. And once you do, your app just never like has a null value and it doesn't expect one. It never crashes. It's crazy. It's really unreal how much of a difference it makes. Yeah, it really is a very valuable tool. One of the things that I'm finding really frustrating about writing Python now is that I don't have option types. And so things are just sometimes none when I don't expect them to be. And I don't notice that until much later at runtime. And I'm like, oh, wait, where did that value come from? I didn't know that. Hmm. Hmm. That's weird. Do, Do you have problems? So if you imagine none to be its own type, right? And string to be its own type mm-hmm. and int to be its own type. What's really happening here is that you have a reference that can be both string and none. Like you can hold two different types. Yeah. And I mean, right? that's something that optional explicitly models in the form of a, a sum type, right? No, no. Yeah, I, I'm down for that. What, my question is just, do you ever have issues in Python with two different types? So like, do you ever have a situation where you're, you have a variable and you thought it was holding an integer, but it's actually holding a string? Or something like that, or is it only with some type? Oh, I, yeah, none? that 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 other like that confusion definitely happens at times too, especially between um, you know things that uh, are strings that just contain an integer and things that are actually integers. Uh, we had a bug a week or two ago at work, which um, you know was causing some of our uh, scans to fail occasionally. It turned out to be uh, because you know, there was a string format thing that was expecting an integer and was receiving like. Um, and a string containing an integer instead. Mm, and, yeah. you know, that's just, uh, uh, that's the, the nature of, of programming in, in, you know, such a... Like untyped um, languages? Yeah, well, like runtime typed languages, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I was basically just wondering, like, do you have problems with, like, string and none only or string and int as well so that was like sounds like I mean, in my experience so far like experience with string and none like just things being missing is a little more common than things being the wrong type right um, right although things definitely are types that i don't expect sometimes too it's it's kind of it's it's annoying when that happens and i lose half an hour to it yeah or more yeah yeah i mean type systems are good um yeah two people who like Strong type systems, like strong type systems. Statically good, enforced type systems. That's right. Yeah. That's a good yeah. good summary for this podcast. People that like type systems like type systems. So, loop, I mean, so looping back to, to what you're doing, so you've looked for, you know, user-facing things, spelling errors, uh, code formatting. You're looking for swift idioms and, and mm-hmm. code smells like not using optionals correctly. Right. What else? Uh, like, have you looked at anything else yet? Are there things that you're planning to look at next? Well, I, I'm kind of like, as I'm auditing this code base, I'm looking for all of these things. But I'm kind of talking more about, okay, give me three months. What will I fix over that time? Okay, yeah. Right? And so this is the order sort of in which I would fix it. So after you get idioms figured out, then the next thing after that, I think it's time to start talking about architecture. Okay. So at that point, that's when you start looking at, okay, where do the responsibilities belong? Are my classes too long? Do I have too many singletons? Uh, How can I restructure things in order to make them behave better? be able to model fewer bugs, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. Um, I think that makes sense. I, I might even move some of this stuff, uh, again, like checking for, um, you know, how singletons are used, for example, uh, sooner than checking you know, how sequences get used, right? Because 
uh, at least in my experience, like using singletons is more likely to lead to user facing bugs than you know, using sequences in a weird way or something like that. Yeah. My thinking here is that yes, yeah, sequences is a, is a weird one. Mostly when I talk about stadiums, I mostly mean optionals. Um, okay. sequences, yeah. there, like, there's very few cases where you are going to want to work at the sequence level. But when that happens, I think you should do it, right? There's also something that I don't know if it should be folded in there, which is, like, are you mapping correctly? Like, are you just creating a mutable array and then um, appending items to it that have been transformed and then returning that array? Like, that should just be a map. And what's the right time to kind of address that and, like, fix a lot of those? Because there's there's situations where that can improve the code reading, improves performance, because, you know, map knows how to reserve a certain capacity in an array. It also makes code easier to read and lets bugs have fewer places to hide in. Stuff like that. I, I don't really know if that belongs in the idiom level, but I want to put it there. But I think of that as a different set of questions than architecture. Okay. I mean, stuff like that, maybe... I, I would personally say it's worth looking at that if the app has a performance problem. Otherwise, I mean... I don't know, like, I get the instinct to to fix things like that, but also, depending on the timeline you have, you may just, there there may be higher priorities, or, like, maybe there aren't, maybe the app is in pretty good shape, but I, I don't know if I see that as, as quite as high of a priority. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, at some point it becomes time to work on architecture. Yeah. Right. And that, I think, is actually the biggest chunk. It has a bunch of smaller sub-chunks in it. So that is teasing apart responsibilities I mentioned, um, basically figuring out, like, in your in your optional handling step, you may have made a bunch of things optional that you then realize, like, hey, actually, this really shouldn't be optional. This is, like, kind of crucial to the identity mm-hmm. of this type, and, like, without it, like, the type shouldn't really exist. And so you, you can go deal with a couple of those things. Dealing with um, who owns what, dealing with, uh, and then, of course, like singletons, a uh, big problem in 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 lots and lots of apps, mm-hmm. um, design of classes, design of functions, that kind of thing, um, and then just jumping ahead a little bit, the last thing that this leads you to, the last thing I have written here, is that is tests. I, I was going to ask about this at some point. Yeah, yeah, because once you have your as you change your architecture, you can then change it in a way that it can be tested, especially if it's like very logic heavy, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and I kind of think you can't really do tests before architecture. You can maybe do it concurrently, but you can't really do it before. And you can't really do tests. Uh, some you can. It depends. So it depends what you're working on, right? If you're cleaning up a lot of things that are in like view controllers or view code, uh, that's just not that testable to start with on iOS because of the way that, you know, UI kit works out. Yeah. Depending how the app is structured though and depending where you're fixing bugs you may be able to add uh like to to add you know not a comprehensive test suite for for a given class but depending what it is yeah i would look for opportunities to to like write a failing test around whatever bug or whatever behavior you're changing it definitely is something that uh in a lot of ios apps that's not likely to be very easy in most cases for for many bugs even even bugs in like logic heavy code but yeah as you note especially as you start like refactoring things more more fundamentally that's a really good uh opportunity to improve testability and to add tests to make sure that you're not like introducing new bugs while you're doing this yeah the only place that i would push back there is like 
obviously the tests have to hit some API surface. And if you're going to be changing the API surface soon anyway, then does it really make sense to write tests against an API that's going to change because you know it's wrong? That would be the only place I'd push back there. It's hard to answer sort of like a hypothetical abstract question, right? But um, I guess it depends on how the API, how you're planning to change that API service. It depends yeah. on, you know, whether expectations around that API are, are changing. Uh, it depends on whether client, you know, how significantly clients of that API are going to change to, to match the new API. Like, mm-hmm. If if your clients aren't going to change that much to match the new API, then your tests probably shouldn't need to change that much either. If you're right. like totally throwing something out uh, and introducing something with different behavior, then yeah, maybe just write tests around the the behavior that you want. Well, so so where I'm coming from is that tests are really good when your interface stays exactly the same, but your implementation changes. That's like that's like the the like slam dunk case for when to write a test. Totally. But if your interface is going to change, then like, like when the implementation changes and you run the test again and you see that it passes again, you can be really, really confident that your implementation change didn't mess anything up. Whereas if your interface changes as well, all of a sudden you're rewriting your test at the same time that you're rewriting your um, thing. And I feel like that can lead to that could definitely lead to issues. Well, it depends how the interface, again, how substantially the interface is changing, right? Yeah, so I'm imagining taking a function that, like, lives on a type and then, like, moving it into its own type that, like, does a thing. Or taking some subset of properties and functions from a type uh, and then extracting into its own thing and then reusing that in multiple places. That's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. Yeah, I mean, in that in those cases, like that can still be right. You may need to like move a test around or like write a test, a, a single test that covers, you know, whatever logic you're you're deduplicating. But um, I mean, even if you need to, you know, change around a, a function signature or or change around the the type that's being tested, uh, if the expectations are similar, and again, like if you're adjusting a test in the same way that you're adjusting like client code that uses whatever API you're testing. Um, I think it's still generally a positive to have that if, you know, if, if the code is in such a state that you can actually do that. Right. Okay. I think I'm following. I think that makes sense. Right. Like it's not going to make, it's, this isn't going to make sense in, in every case, obviously you're like ripping this code, the code out and totally re- like, um, and splitting, you know, this one function into two functions in two different places that do different things. Uh, like, yeah, you're you're not going to reuse the same test for that. Um, right. If you're moving a function from one type to another, like, the function probably still does the same things, right? You know, even if the setup is is a little bit different, like you instantiate object B instead of object A, and then call B dot my function. Right, yes. Like uh, in, yeah, yeah. Like, in that sort of case, the AP, your API isn't really changing that much. Right. And another idea I had is like, okay, one way to test it to make sure is, okay, so let's say you have object A has some functionality, you want to extract an object B, you extract an object B, but then call it from object A. And then before you've done that, you've actually written a test for A. And so you maintain that A keeps its API contract. And then as long as those tests are passing, then you can go write tests for B as well. Sure. Yeah. 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 And that way you can be sure that 
you're not changing the implementation and the interface at the same time and, and writing um, a test that could fail for reasons other than that the code is wrong. Yeah. And it's also worth noting just in like a lot of iOS code that you find out there, it's not likely to be easy to test and it's it may not be worth you know making the changes that are required to make the code testable and then like refactoring it. It may be worth just uh just making your your best effort at changes and then yeah. making and sure that they work that it works right yeah and and yeah. trying to get tests around like the new code that you've written at least yeah yeah so so this was my rough approach of like okay if you're in a code base and you want to fix stuff what should you focus on in what order and i thought it was kind of a weird result that i ran into because it starts from things that are trivial and quick to do and ends up with things that are complicated and take a long time. And I didn't know if that was good or bad. This is I mean, kind of the conclusion part of the, of the episode. Sure. I, <laughs> I mean, I think that's good. If you have things like taking the extreme trivial case, if there are spelling errors in, in the app, that users are going to notice that. And that's going to be really fast well, oh, for you I to actually fix. Mean in so functions, fix them. I mean in functions and, and types and stuff. Oh. Yeah, nobody's ever going to see that. I would, weird, right? I would try to, I mean, I get that instinct, especially if it's like a short-term contract gig. I would really try to prioritize like technical problems that are going to result in, um, in user-facing improvements or in at least subtle user-facing improvements. And I don't know how incompatible that really is with what you're saying, right? Because, I mean, again, a sort of through arc that I really want to drive home with this, with this entire podcast, all, all 60-some episodes is that we're not talking about software development principles. We're not in, in a vacuum. We're not talking about them, um, or we're not talking about like the single responsibility principle in a vacuum. We're not talking about singleto- uh, singletons in a vacuum. It's like, not code for the sake of code. Right. It's code for the sake of like doing stuff for uh, on your on a user's phone or on a in a user's web browser, right? Being useful. And so you can yeah. go about this by like trying to identify user facing problems using the app. You can look at code smells, look at violations of these principles and best practices and prioritize by the like likely impact that the users will see because of them. And uh, those are kind of two sides of the same coin, right? The like technical problems uh, are violations of, of best practices are not like isolated from what the user sees in our software. Yeah. They're related. Yeah. So yeah. if you have trivial things that you can fix that will make like an impact for the user, whether it's per, like a performance impact that they'll, you know, that, that they might notice, whether it's, uh, you know, fixing a crash bug, whether it's something in between and that's an easy fix, then do that. If it's just like rearranging code for the sake of code, then like maybe yeah, see if there are, if there are more important wins for you to go for. Right. And I mean, I think moving code for the sake of moving code can be valuable, I think that that I would call yak shaving as opposed to bike shedding, right? Bike shedding I would consider something <laughs> where it's um you're arguing about the the about something that is simple and will affect a lot of people but ultimately is a pretty straightforward decision and someone should just make it. Yak shaving is about doing a bunch of work up front that you don't necessarily know is going to lead you anywhere good, but you have a good feeling that it will take you somewhere good. And when you do it, you may what what happens to me I don't want to give any numbers or anything, but like what happens to me feels like enough times for me to trust my gut is that you, you change some stuff and then you realize like as you're changing and like moving some stuff around, you realize, oh, these pieces of code are actually 
kind of the same thing. And if I could abstract this one component from it, then I could build a more robust, testable, whatever layer underneath them both and then build them both on top of that and mm-hmm. end up with a code base that's better. And you end up like, you just kind of like, I don't know. This is a very different point than the rest of this episode was kind of making. But like, I think yak shaving can be nice. It it, it can be, and in the def- and it can definitely have like benefits. I would just caution that you know if if there are things that are more clear wins to do in the yeah. like in the near term, maybe do those before you you start shaving your yaks. Yeah, and I think part of yak shaving um, that makes it really great is that it can be really quick. And then that quickness you can show you something that you can see before. Yeah. Yeah. Like That's, if you're gonna spend two weeks yak shaving something, maybe think about that a little bit harder before you start. But if it's gonna be like a twenty or thirty minute or an hour long yak shave and you come to some realization or some epiphany about your code at the end of it, that seems super worthwhile. I'll I'll definitely grant you that. I was thinking of yak shaving as typically being a longer process, right? Like you're like a week later you find yourself like writing um uh your own ui framework for ios on OpenGL <laughs> or something that's, uh, right. that's probably not, that not worth doing <laughs> um yeah. but for your you know your contract app that's probably not worth doing yeah. uh if you're spending like 30 minutes um you know improving some code and, and learning about the project then yeah go for it yeah checks out yeah so that's the rough framework i came up with for Thinking about how to work in a new code base and thinking about what things would be worth tackling. Yeah. I wonder, one of the things that you noted, before we wrap up, um, one of the things that you noted is that some of the stuff is, are a lot of things that you look for are things that you see just kind of based on experience and gut feeling. Do we have any, like, do we have useful advice for people who you know, are not, uh, you know, maybe haven't been writing Swift quite as long? Um, and don't maybe don't have quite a, as developed a, like a gut feeling. And I'm trying to think what, what I would say in this case. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, frankly, like the back to work esque, like the butcher who always knows that the meat is two pounds even before they weigh it. Like experience is super valuable. And that, that is what experience gets you. If you yeah. don't have that experience, part of what helped me, especially in the early days is like, Th- looking at stuff and thinking about it and, and getting this feeling like, hey, even then when I say feeling, I don't mean like from experience. I mean, just I was like two years into writing code and I was like, something about this is wrong. I, I couldn't really express why it's wrong, but something doesn't seem right here. And kind of listening to that feeling and listening to that idea of like, well, I've I've read these things here and they maybe apply, but I can't really tell. But whatever's going on here, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And um Oftentimes, like, you know, posts on my blog, if I posted something in 2017, I maybe was thinking about it for four years before I figured out how to express it in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it, it, sometimes this stuff takes time to like figure out. Like, it just, it just does. But I think, like, listening to that gut and thinking, like, okay, something weird's going on here. I don't know what it is yet. I don't know, if, I don't know how long it's going to take me to figure out what it is, but I know that I don't like this. I'm not, um, yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm gonna also say, uh, you know, maybe it's a balance between like using the app and looking for things that seem off, uh, and reading the code and looking for things that seem off. And you know, obviously, both of these are are useful tools. Uh, maybe if you don't have quite as developed a gut sense for Swift, 
idioms, but you're using the app and you know, like, these things seem like similar, but have subtly different behavior. That seems really weird. Like, maybe that's a jumping off point for you to like start digging into that, that area of the code and, and seeing what's going on. Um, and, you know, maybe you, uh, you end up finding some, some similar, but duplicate code that via something like that too. Yeah. Another thing I would, I would say is like, if there's a part of the code that keeps breaking, it may not be written the best way. Yeah. Like it, it may be like it, not only might have bugs, but it may be written in such a way that it tends towards bugs. Mm -hmm. And like, we actually like another contract that I'm on had a very similar situation where there's a piece of code that just kept failing. And I was like, you know what? Like, I don't think we're thinking about this right. I, I think we just have to, you know, blow it up and, and try a totally different approach. And I opened a pull request for that today and fingers crossed that it works. <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But yeah, if, if something breaks over and over again, maybe worth checking. Like, yeah, absolutely. Could we write this better? Is there a better way to model this? Is there a better way to think about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, cool. On Pretty that good note, episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to get some of this pizza in my fridge. I'm going to go watch Michigan basketball game. Go blue. Sounds good. <laughs> Talk to you soon, Chris. Bye, sirs.